Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. So this morning, we're going to talk about how to learn the Charlotte Mason method. And I'd like to open with a photograph from 2003. And so this is a younger version of myself um, (laughs) sitting with my firstborn. And uh, he's now just finishing his first year in college. At this point in 2003, when this photo was taken, I had just made the decision to homeschool. But I had never heard of Charlotte Mason. I did know, though, how to pass on my loves to my children. And I loved video games. And as you can see um, already, my son being less than four years old, um, I was passing on my loves to him. And I gave him that love. And I have to say that that's one of my great regrets, is that I gave him that love. But I had made the decision to homeschool. And in May of that year, that same year of 2003, I went to a big event by the Wisconsin Christian Home Educators Association, uh, affectionately known as uh, WCHIA, I think they call it. And um, at this event, because I needed to figure out how I was going to get started on homeschooling, so I looked at all the different tables and the booths and everything like that, and I picked up a flyer that was going to change my life. And uh, this flyer was produced by an organization called Hewitt Homeschooling. And uh, this flyer said, you can send away for a manual, which will tell you how to get started on homeschooling. And so I was at the beginning of my journey. So of course, I sent away for this manual that was going to tell me how to homeschool. And so I still have the manual. It came in this small little three-ring binder. And uh, I still have it. And here's uh, two of the pages that I pulled out of it. And um, fairly early on in the manual, It says that you need to have a philosophy and a method of education. And I thought, huh. I mean, I didn't even know that there was such a thing as a philosophy of education. And now I'm being told that if I'm going to start homeschooling, I need to figure out what my philosophy is. So, um, you know, the booklet said, if you're going to get started, this is step one of your journey. So I followed the directions. (laughs) And I said, okay, I need to figure out what my philosophy is. So when we talk about today, when I talk about how to learn the Charlotte Mason method, I'm starting with an assumption. And my assumption is that you want to learn the method. So let me just be clear. This presentation is not about trying to convince you that you should. I'm not trying to convince you that, that, that the Charlotte Mason method is the right philosophy for you or that it's the best philosophy. I'm, my starting assumption here is that for whatever reason, you want to learn the method. I had a reason to learn the method because I was told that I needed to understand my philosophy of education. And the manual from Hewitt Homeschooling had a couple of pages where they gave a list of about six or seven different philosophies of education that you could choose from. And so I read a couple of paragraphs on each one. And I think maybe number two or number three on the list was the Charlotte Mason approach. And that was the very first time that I saw that name. And so I read the descriptions of the six or seven philosophies, and I thought about them and which ones seemed to be the best fit for our family. And I kept coming back to this, these two paragraphs or three paragraphs that described Charlotte Mason. And it just seemed to be a good fit for my family. 
And so I wanted to learn the method because I needed a philosophy. Now, in my presentation this morning, I want to talk about first what I believe is the wrong way to learn the method. And that's the way that I went about it. <laughs> and what I'd like to do instead, after I talk about the wrong way, is I'd like to talk about what I believe is the right way. And this is the right way, from my opinion, based on my 15 years of experience with Charlotte Mason. So I'm going to start with the wrong way. Um, I'm going to give you an outline of the steps that, uh, that I see as the wrong way. And I'm using alliteration to help remember these. So these aren't necessarily the best ways to describe the three steps, but at least they all start with T. So they're very easy to remember. And so I'm calling these uh, testimonies, texts, and techniques. And so these are kind of my summary of the three kind of wrong steps for how to learn the Charlotte Mason method. Um, step one is testimonies. So the manual said, Order for the Children's Sake by Susan Schaefer Macaulay. So in 2003, still that same year, I ordered the book. I read the book. took me about, uh, I think I read it in maybe one or two sittings. I was fascinated by it. thought it was a great book. I loved it. And uh, I didn't have any more steps after that, you know. Hewitt Homeschooling didn't tell me what to do after buying this book. So I naturally, after finishing that, I naturally ordered another book. And I read this book. And then, of course, naturally, I, in 2005, ordered another book. And I read this book. And then, of course, naturally, in 2007, <laughs> I ordered another book. And these are all very good books. Don't get me wrong. These are all very, very good books. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, these books are, are testimonies. They're, they're testimonies about Charlotte Mason. They're, they're the reflections of, of, of certain people and their experiences with Charlotte Mason. And what I found is that through these testimonies, I was not able to get at the heart of the method. And why did it take me four or five years to figure that out. I'd like to, you know, hopefully help you to save that, um, save that mistake. And the, and the interesting thing is, you know, did I have to go about it that way? Or had anyone learned before me that testimonies about Charlotte Mason are not the best way to get at the heart of the method? Well, it turns out that I didn't have to make that mistake myself. It turns out that that has been known for a very long time. In fact, in 1923, Helen Wicks, who was an insider in the PNEU, she wrote, it is such a temptation to us ordinary folks to emphasize some part at the expense of the rest and so turn a strength into a weakness. There is only one way to avoid this danger, and that is to constantly read and reread Miss Mason's books. Constantly to remind ourselves of her first principles. For from now on, Miss Mason's work is in our hands. We dare not leave unmade any effort to keep the truth. So it turns out that this was well known. This was understood back in 1923. Why didn't I know this? But I'm going to remind you of this. The only way to avoid this danger is to read and reread Miss Mason's books. So then the second approach <laughs> is, I'm calling it texts. So early on, I had this sense that to do Charlotte Mason, it all boiled down to having the right book list. And so I wanted to find the most authentic 
Charlotte Mason book list to use with my kids. And I thought that if I just could get the right set of books, I would be doing CM. But an interesting thing happened because I was traveling with Barbara, uh, I think it was at a uh, Charlotte Mason conference, I think. And um, we were staying at a, at a hotel. And at one point, you know, during that time, um, I still wanted to do uh, like a Bible lesson. So I was there with my, with my son, who you saw on that earlier slide. And I did a Bible lesson with him. And Barbara was kind of in the room. We we're just in this single hotel room. And she's kind of watching and observing. And I finished the lesson and all was done. And I'm feeling pretty good about that because I know that the Bible for sure is one of the right books to be using. <laughs> so I was using one of the right books. And so then Barbara kind of said to me, you know, Art, um, whatever it was that you just did with Palmer, that was not Charlotte Mason. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, but I was using the right book, right? I was using the right book. So it seems like just using the right books is not the answer. Now, I had to learn that the hard way. Did I have to, or had somebody else already figured out that it's not just about the book list? Well, it turns out that that was actually well known. <laughs> and in 1926, Elsie Kitching, another profound insider in the a very close associate of Charlotte Mason and an insider in the PNEU, she wrote in response to a letter, a letter that had been received by a leader in a school district who got the book list. And he said, I don't see much value in the Charlotte Mason method. And here is how Elsie Kitching responded. In answer to the objections of your colleague, quote, I subscribed to the material for one year so that I could see what value it had to offer us. I may be wrong in my action, but I was unable to get any particular value from it. Elsie Kitching's response, a subscription for a year's programs is of no value, as I have already indicated. There is no intrinsic merit in Miss Mason's method apart from the principles on which it is based. Wow. I wish somebody had told me that when I was looking for the perfect book list. No intrinsic merit. So then I said, well, maybe the answer is in the technique. Maybe the answer is in the technique. Barbara had said to me, whatever you're doing, it's not CM. And that cut me to the core. So I wanted to figure out, well, what is the technique? So I began to study more carefully about techniques like narration. And I studied it very carefully to understand how is the right way to do narration. And I became convinced, for example, that, that narration is to be done after a single reading. And I honed in on the techniques, hoping that the more precise I could get about doing it just the right way, that maybe that would lead me to the heart of the method. And just to give you an idea of that, here's an email that I wrote in 2008. This is actually a screenshot from Gmail. There was Gmail back then, by the way, for those of you who doubt. So in 2008, I, I wrote this email about a workshop that I had attended at a Charlotte Mason event. And I said, the presenter compared Charlotte Mason's method of narration to modern documented techniques of retelling. The presenter, who was a teacher in a Charlotte Mason school, said that Miss Mason is unique 
in her strict insistence on narration after a single reading, all other modern retell techniques require the student to carefully study the passage several times, often in several ways, before finally retelling it. Do you see, this is where my head was at. I know the way we do it in CM. There's one reading. We narrate after a single reading. But even as I honed in on those techniques, I found that I still had not reached the heart of the method. And was that a mistake unique to me? Had somebody already figured out that there was more to it than the technique? Well, it turns out that that was well known as far back as 1926 when H.W. Household, a leader in a school district who actually incorporated Charlotte Mason's methods, and here's what he wrote. He said, if you regard the Charlotte Mason method as a bag of tricks of which you can select one or two for adoption, leaving the rest, you will have nothing but disappointment. It is the outcome of a philosophy of education, and you must take all or none. You cannot use her methods and books for teaching literature and developing composition and use other methods and other books for teaching, say, history and geography. See, Household said it's not a bag of tricks. It's not a bag of tricks. There's a reason why Household says you must take all or none. It's not because he's, you know, just uh, biased. It's not because he is trying to be critical of other educational methods. It's not because he's a Charlotte Mason fanatic. It's not because he's a legalist. He said it because the method is the outcome of a philosophy. That's why you have to take all or none. And here we were, back where I started. Remember, Hewitt Homeschooling said, you need to have a philosophy of education. And so that leads me to what I believe is the right way to learn the method. Now, I just want to take a step back for a minute and uh, think in our, in our English language. Do we have a noun? So I, I wanna, we're talking about a verb, how to learn. To learn is a verb, right? So do we have a noun that refers to the process of learning? Can anyone think of a noun that refers to kind of the process or act or discipline of learning? Education. 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 So it turns out that there's actually somebody I know of who has a lot to say about education. And this person said that education is atmosphere, discipline, and life. And it turns out that these three instruments of education are actually the best ways to learn the Charlotte Mason method because learning is actually part of the process of education. So I want to go through these three steps and I'm going to take them actually in reverse order. So I'm going to start with life and then I'm going to go to discipline and then I'm going to go to atmosphere. So I'm going to start first with life. What did Charlotte Mason mean when she said education is a life? She covers this in principle eight of the synopsis, or the 20 principles, and she says that ed by education is a life, she means that the mind feeds on ideas. And this whole notion of the mind feeding on ideas, we find from the very beginning of her writings on a philosophy of education. So I'm going to show you a screenshot from, or a, a scan, from the original first edition, 1886, of the home education. And here's where she describes ideas and how the mind feeds on ideas. For the dictionary, she says, appears to me to fall short of the truth. 
in its definition of the term idea. An idea is more than an image or a picture. It is, so to speak, a spiritual germ endowed with vital force, with power, that is, to grow and to produce after its kind. It is the very nature of an idea to grow. As the vegetable germ secretes that it lives by, so fairly implant an idea in the child's mind, and it will secrete its own food, grow and bear fruit in the form of a succession of kindred ideas. So ideas have vital power. They have the ability to grow. The word vital is associated, its root form means life. Ideas have this ability to, once they're planted in the child's heart, they start to blossom and produce and they start to create the very things that are needed to sustain that growth. This is a picture that I like to use to describe kind of what your brain is like on on autopilot. So much, you know, 99% of the time we're just kind of operating out of our habits and we're just kind of thinking the same thoughts, operating out of routine and doing the same thing. And an idea, a living idea, is something that creates a splash in your mind. It disrupts that steady state pattern of thoughts, your habitual ways of reasoning and thinking. Living ideas create that splash. Living ideas can be found in a number of places. They can be found in the Bible, in nature, in music, in poetry, in art, and in living books. And I have to say that I know what it looks like when a living idea hits someone, when a living idea hits a man or a woman or a child. And I will tell you that these six books have living ideas in them. And so I urge you to read these books, read them carefully, and let your brain splash. And am I saying don't listen to podcasts? Am I saying don't go to retreats? Am I saying don't go to workshops? Am I saying don't listen to speakers? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. If it's not irreverent, I'd like to just make an analogy. Think about the relationship between your daily Bible reading and your sermon at church. Would anybody say don't go hear a sermon at church? Of course not. But does anybody here think that hearing a sermon at church is a substitute for your own personal daily reading of the Bible? Absolutely not. So in the same way, I would say go to your favorite retreat. Listen to your favorite podcast once a week, but read the volumes every day. But Charlotte Mason said that knowledge is not assimilated until it is reproduced. And the way that I like to express this graphically or visually is with this picture where we have a mind. And the idea here is that When you're reading something or encountering a living idea, I have it represented as your idea. This is an idea that you're finding in nature in a book you're reading or something like that. It's an idea clothed with facts. And when you read it, your mind has to process it. And then you narrate. And in the process of narrating, you bring forth something new, which I call my idea. Because now it was your idea, the idea that some author wrote or in, in some living book. Now in the process of retelling it, something's coming out of my mouth or out of my pen. And it's a new idea. It's my idea. I've taken what the author wished to express and I've combined it with my experiences and my perspective and my understanding. And I've spoken it out. And Charlotte Mason believed that in that process, once I have expressed my idea that and only then, then and only then, is when knowledge is formed in your mind. And so what I would say is that just reading the volumes is not going to give you the full impact of the living ideas that are contained therein. You must narrate them. 
And I believe that in order to take narration seriously, you have to narrate to someone else. So with all due respect, I'm just going to throw down the gauntlet and say that if you truly want to learn the Charlotte Mason method, you need to join some kind of study group that is reading the volumes. Without that, you simply will not get to the heart of the method. I'm not saying that you have to read the six volumes in two years. That's not for everyone. So the pace may be different, but I am saying that you have to read and discuss the volumes in some kind of community. Now, a lot of people ask about which volume to read first and what order to read the volumes. And uh, a lot of opinions have been expressed about this question. And in the discussion about which volume to read first and the order to read them, it can get so complex that sometimes we need to shift into a different kind of language to express really complex problems. And Charlotte Mason talked about how math, mathematics, is like a separate language. So I'm going to use the language of algebra to engage this very difficult question about what order to read the volumes. <laughs> and so if you're not familiar with algebra, um, I, we can go over it afterwards. But for some of you who have had, had algebra, um, you know, hang on tight and try to follow the logic here. So n, n is going to represent the volume that you're currently reading. So the domain of n can be 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, or 6. So n is the volume you're currently reading. Now, the volume to read next is n plus 1, okay? <laughs> and start with n equals 1, okay? <laughs> so so that's, that's the algebraic method. Hopefully that's... Hopefully that's clear. Now, now, I just want to say that I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to say that this is, this is not, I don't want to be dogmatic about this. So if you, if you have the opportunity to join a study group and they happen to be reading volume four, and if they're halfway through volume four and you have an opportunity to join them, then start with volume four. So the priority from my point of view is to find your community, find your group, find your friend, find your email group, find your online, whatever it is. And whatever ha volume they happen to be reading, just get started. But if you have the opportunity to choose, um, you can do the math. <laughs> and, if, and if you want to know why, if you want to see kind of some of the background on it, there's two excellent articles on this topic on Charlotte Mason poetry by Morgan Connor. So that will give you some more information. So that's education as a life. And ha that's how um, education as a life, I believe, applies to how to learn the Charlotte Mason method. So now I want to talk about discipline. Charlotte Mason said that by education as a discipline, we mean the discipline of habits formed definitely and thoughtfully, whether habits of mind or body. Physiologists tell us of the adaptation of brain structures to habitual lines of thought, i.e., to our habits. I want to read that again. Physiologists tell us of the adaptation of brain structures to habitual lines of thought. Adaptation of brain structures. That was a radical, radical thought in the 19th century. Because you see, the, the classical philosophers, they understood mind as your mind, you're kind of pre-configured. Your mind is like this large, empty warehouse with shelves. All these shelves built in, but all the shelves are empty. And they're all perfectly fitted, perfectly formed to have crates filled in in their specific spot. And those crates represent the idyllic forms. And so the idea is that your mind is pre-configured 
to just receive one by one the ideas of the perfect forms that will fill in that warehouse. But Charlotte Mason looked to science to radically change that point of view. And she wrote, is not physiology hurrying up with the announcement that to every man it is permitted to mold and modify his own brain? Those shelves were not pre-configured for you. You have the power to, every man has the power to mold and modify his own brain. And it's not heredity and not environment, but education that is the final and the formative power. So what I'm going to suggest to you is that to learn the Charlotte Mason method, you need to mold your brain. What does that look like? How do you mold your brain? So to illustrate that, I'm going to talk a little bit about an incident that happened during the Idol Challenge. And as I've said before, this started uh, almost two years ago. And a group of men agreed to go on a, on a fast pace of reading 90 pages per month and then have a 60-minute meeting once per month. And uh, here's a picture of what it looks like when we would get together. Um, so we're using Zoom. I love Zoom because it gives you that uh, Brady Bunch or Hollywood Squares kind of views so you can see everybody at once. So what we would do when we would get together on this video meeting together, we had 60 minutes. We always started on time and we always ended on time. And there were three questions that, that everyone needed to come with. It's always the same three questions every month. And everybody has to come prepared with their answers. And the three questions are, number one, what is something that you have a question about from this month's reading? And then the second question is, what is something that you disagree with from this month's reading? See, I invite the readers to express quite clearly things that they don't agree with, things that they think are off in the, in the volumes, and, that, and they're required to think through that and think critically about what they're reading every month. And then the third question is, what's something inspiring that you would like to put into practice from this month's reading? And so we always would start in the same format, roughly 20 minutes we'd spend on each section, and I'd say, okay, guys, you know, what were the questions you had about this, this month's reading? And people would bring up questions, and we'd discuss them, and sometimes I would throw out an answer, sometimes the other guys would throw out an answer, and we kind of discuss through it. Then we get into the disagreement part. That, that was always very interesting, because we'd get into the disagreement part, and, and somebody would say, well, I disagree, you know, when Charlotte Mason says such and such. And usually I didn't have to say a whole lot during this time, because usually what would happen is one of the guys would come in and say, well, you know, uh, friend, you know, I don't, I don't think you're kind of reading that correctly. I think what she really meant is this. And like, oh, okay, I get it. So the vast majority of the time, actually, we cleared up those disagreements, um, which is kind of neat to see. And I didn't have to do a whole lot of work myself on that part. But my favorite part was always the last 20 minutes. This was the feel-good time of the study. This is the time that makes me so happy that we embarked on this discussion because this is where I say, what was something that inspired you about the reading, something that you want to put into practice? And I, did, I wish that I had written down everything that had been suggested during those segments because I would have guys say, you know, I, I, I'm inspired to be more patient and understanding with my wife. Or one guy said, you know, sometimes I get intimidated by the books that my daughter is reading because she's reading books that are above anything that I ever got in my schooling, and that makes me feel uncomfortable. And so I kind of joke and tease about it, and I realize that that's the wrong thing to do. And so I'm inspired to be more respectful and take it more seriously and be more encouraging when my daughter talks about the books that she's been reading. One person said, you know, I'm inspired to start learning more about art and I want to start going to art museums and seeing more art and bringing that into my life. Somebody else said, I'm inspired to set up something where 
I'm going to start keeping my own commonplace book and my book of centuries. And I'm inspired to set up a family time where on Sundays we all get together, everyone in the family, and we share what we've been writing in our books, our notebooks, and our journals together. Just so many, one after the other, month after month, these beautiful ideas being shared. But then a fascinating thing happened about halfway through the journey. Because one of the men, you know, we we were kind of in that mountaintop feel-good moment, and then one of the men said something that kind of put a little bit of a fly in the ointment and kind of interrupted that, you know, blissful reverie. And he said, you know, Art, he said, um, every month you know, I come up with something that I'm really inspired to put into practice. And I get really, you know, excited about it. I'm energized. I felt that splash in my mind, you know, the living idea created that splash. And then, you know, I try to put into practice, and I do it for maybe one day, two days, three days, maybe a week. And then it's gone. And then we come back for our next meeting, and I have some new idea, and I get all inspired, and I say that I want to do it, and I do it for one day or two days or three days, and then it's gone. I said, Art, is that the way it's supposed to work? <laughs> is that the way it's supposed to work? So let's talk a little bit about the splash and what happens when a living idea strikes you. One of my favorite stories about this is in volume uh, two. And here's how Charlotte Mason writes about it. You tell a child that the great duke slept in so narrow a bed that he could not turn over because, said he, when you want to turn over, it's time to get up. You know, I just saw actually a picture of, this is the Duke of Wellington, I just saw a picture of his bed. And, and he had this room when he was uh, his campaign bed, I think it was called. And so it was in this, this, this lovely room with a bookshelf and bookcase and everything. And there's this bed, this tiny bed, like against the bookshelf that is like probably a foot wide. And so this is the, and so why did the hero of Waterloo, the savior of England, the defeater of Napoleon, why did he sleep on such a narrow bed? Because he didn't want to oversleep. Because you know what? If I'm rolling over, then that means my body's had enough rest and it's time for me to get up because I've got to save England. I don't have time to roll over in bed. And so this young British boy, he reads this story and he gets really excited because he wants to be like the great Duke because he knows why he's not speaking French every day. He's speaking English because he has a hero who saved his country. And so he's very excited. And so the mother seizes this opportunity. But see, the problem is the boy doesn't want to get up in the morning. He likes rolling over in bed. He likes staying in bed. So he's got this tension, this tension between his mind on autopilot, his habit. His habit is to stay in bed and to keep resting. But he had this inspiration because he wants to be like the Duke. Do you see the tension that gets created? The old ripples are so powerful. And they want to fight back that splash. And so the mother, but he does want to be like the hero of Waterloo. So you, the mother, stimulate him to act upon this idea day after day for a month or so until the habit is formed and it is just as easy not to get up in good time. You see how there's a partnership. The boy is like, oh man, I don't want to get up. But the mother says, remember? Remember the Duke? Remember his bed? Oh yeah, okay, I'll get up. And then the second day, do you remember that inspiration that you had? Day after day after day. And eventually, it becomes just as easy to get up in good time. So how do you know when it's a habit? You know it's a habit when it is just as easy as not to do. So you see, the problem that my friend had with his question in the idle challenge is that he, he had the inspiring idea 
but he didn't have a strategy for making it a habit. And so you might say, okay, Art, I mean, seriously, this habit stuff, habit stuff is for kids, you know? Habit is the habit of obedience, you know, the habit of getting up out of bed, the habit of courtesy. Like, once we're, you know, grown up and we're like men and all that kind of stuff, like all this habit stuff doesn't really apply to us anymore. And you're just totally misapplying, misinterpreting Charlotte Mason to think that somehow all of this habit idea stuff could apply to parents. Well, it turns out that Charlotte Mason actually described this from day one in the first edition of Home Education, 1886. She said, the mother devotes herself to the formation of one habit at a time. So we're still talking about the mother forming the habit in the child. Doing no more than keep watch over these already formed. If she be appalled by the thought of overmuch labor, let her limit the number of good habits she will lay herself out to form. So far, so good. The child who starts in life with, say, 20 good habits begins with a certain capital, which he will lay out to endless profit as the years go on. Here we go. The mother who is distrustful of her own power of steady effort may well take comfort in two facts. In the first place, she herself acquires the habit of training her children in a given habit. So that by and by it becomes not only no trouble, but a pleasure to her. You see what happens? Is she gets the habit of training her children in habit. And it seems really difficult, you know? First day, the second day, the third day. But eventually, after four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, seven weeks, it becomes just as easy to be in habit formation mode as to not be. So the idea here is that you want to become habitual in understanding how habit applies to your own life. You want to start thinking in terms of strategically like habit. Okay, here, here's an inspiring idea. What am I going to do with this? Because if, if I just let it splash, it's just going to fizzle out. So you have to make a decision. And you have to say, am I going to take this inspiring idea? And I'm gonna if I'm going to make this part of my life, I need to have a strategy for habit formation for me. But if I don't have that strategy, let's just let it go. We're not going to do it. You've got to make a decision about these inspirations that come your way, and you've got to decide, I'm either going to nurture this and cultivate it and let it grow, or I'm going to set it aside. The flame on the lampstand before the veil in the temple under the old covenant, it was meant to be kept burning all the time. So at this retreat, you're going to get a lot of inspiring ideas. You're going to get inspired to do a lot of things. And God is going to light a candle in your heart. But whose responsibility is it to keep that candle burning? It's your responsibility. By diligence and by vigilance, every day, you have to keep the flame of habit alive. So when you see the light and when you see that candle, something happens this weekend that gets you inspired and you sit in that glow, don't just sit there and admire it. Don't just sit there and admire it. Please do one of two things. It's better to just extinguish the flame and say, I'm not going to do this. Just decisively just say, I'm not going to do this. Extinguish the flame or apply diligence and vigilance and keep it alive and make it a habit. But don't just let it burn out. Please. The light is too valuable for that. So how to learn the Charlotte Mason method? One set of habits at a time. 
The reason why I say one set of habits is because we can get into the habit taxonomy and it's like even doing the habit of nature study, there's probably like 20 micro habits that you have to do just to like get out and do nature study. So rather than kind of argue about is it one habit, is it 20 habits, is there, I'm just going to say one set of habits. So I'm going to kind of leave that open for you to figure out what, how much, you know, how many habits you can take on. So if you want to learn the Charlotte Mason method and you want to become, develop the habit of Charlotte Mason approach in your home, what are the habits that you should start with? And this is actually a difficult question. And the reason it's a difficult question is because of this phenomenon called the feast. So principle 13, Charlotte Mason said, in devising a syllabus for a normal child of whatever social class, three points must be considered. I'm just going to tell the first two. He requires much knowledge for the mind needs sufficient food as much as does the body. And the knowledge should be various for sameness in mental diet does not create appetite, i.e., curiosity. So Charlotte Mason uses this analogy of the feast, and there's two characteristics, primary characteristics of the feast. First of all, it's balanced. Secondly, it's nutritious. It's broad. By balanced, I mean it's broad. And so this is the food guide. This is from uh, Britain, so this isn't the American food pyramid or whatever, but I like this picture because it conveys the, the, both the, the balance, the breadth. There's a lot of different kinds of food on here. And this is an analogy of the feast because it's the hallmark of a Charlotte Mason method that you're laying before your child the feast of all of these different things like nature, literature, art, and architecture, as we heard about so wonderfully yesterday. All of the, It's a very, very large and broad feast. So how are you supposed to, if you can only do like one or two habits at a time, how are you supposed to suddenly just be able to day one just present this incredible feast for your children like the moment you get started? It's, it's a real problem. And so what I recommend is to start with four. And the four that I recommend are number one, go outside. This is always the place to start with the Charlotte Mason education. This is where it starts in volume one, the outdoor life. Um, every day, go outside. Number two, read and narrate living books. Find living books and have your children read and narrate them. And then teach living math. That means doing math that's not a worksheet. It means taking the time to learn how to teach and to teach your child math face to face. And then finally, start a handicraft. And by handicraft, I don't mean housework. <laughs> I mean making something. And especially for some children who struggle with academics, it's very valuable for them to be able to be building things. Everyone should be building things with their hands, but it's especially valuable for, for certain children. And I think that the simplest place to start, square one for handicraft, is to start with paper sloyd. So I say start with four, and then the basic principle that I would advise is to go broad and then deep. And what do I mean by going broad and then deep? I love these things on the right-hand side of this table. Okay? I'm doing an immersion session on the Savior of the world. But don't let your intimidation of knowing how to do a, a lesson in the Savior of the world keep you from just reading and narrating the Bible. Read and narrate your living books first. There's plenty of time for you to go deeper later. Sulfa, I love Sulfa, and uh, we, we've put out some articles on, at, on Charlotte Mason Poetry and how to do Sulfa. But don't let your intimidation of getting up to speed on Sulfa keep you from singing. Just sing. Everybody can do that. So I guess what I would say is don't get so carried away with the gourmet 
that you neglect the core nutrients, the variety that sustains life. It's variety first, it's gourmet second, okay? Don't let your love for Swedish drill keep you from doing picture study. Go broad. Figure out how to go as broad as you can, and then you can go deep. But remember, so if you start with four, if you start by going broad and then by going deep, if you have other inspirations that you wanted to put into practice, I still go back to this story from volume two. The boy, the tension, right? The tension between the status quo, the tension between your, ha- your current set of habits and the way you want to be and the change that you want to see in your life. The boy doesn't wish to get up in the morning, but he does wish to be like the hero of Waterloo. And what happens? What's the key? What's the link? What's the decisive element? It's the mother, you stimulate him to act upon this idea. And so here's the challenge as parents, as, edu- as parent educators, if we want to develop these habits in our own life, who's playing the part of the mom? Who's going to remind you when you wake up and it's time to go outside and you don't want to go outside because you're used to just sitting inside and watching TV or whatever, who's going to be the person to say, remember what happened at the LER when you got that inspiration to go outside? Do you remember that? Who's going to remind you? Who's going to be that voice for you? You can try to do it on your own, but I would have to say that if you want to do this on your own, it is an uphill battle. Some extraordinary people can do it for sure, but it is an uphill battle. So I would urge you to find someone, a friend, or a group, a study group, or something. Find somebody who can play the role of this mother to this child, who can whisper in your ear and say, remember what you got so excited about doing? How's that, how's that coming along? Did you remember to do it today? Are you going to do it tomorrow? Is it going to become a habit? And just one little note of advice. I would say when you look for that person who's going to be that kind of voice for you to help you on that habit formation, you know, your mileage may vary, but my advice would be that it's not your spouse. And don't get me wrong. Um, my Barbara definitely, you know, she tells me when I'm doing stuff, when I'm messing stuff up. I don't want you to get the wrong idea. She tells me when I'm messing stuff up. Um, I listen. She has the freedom to do that. She calls me out on things. Um, but at the same time, you know, she's, she's my sanctuary. And, you know, when it comes to that prodding voice, I'm thankful that, that I, I just don't want Barbara to be that prodding voice for me. So when it came to, for example, my goal to read through the six volumes in two years, I wanted to see those guys. They can prod me all they want. I want them to be the reminder. And I'm going to save. Barbara's going to tell me about the real hard issues that I need to deal with. We've got more than enough stuff to deal with in that relationship. So who is your partner in habit formation? So then step three is atmosphere. And um, I'm just going to read a quote from Parents and Children. Education is an atmosphere. Now, when Charlotte Mason talks about atmosphere, of course, it means a, vari- a lot of things. It means, the, the, it means the physical environment that the child lives in, the natural home environment. It involves people, activities, and things. I'm going to zero in on the people element of atmosphere mo- for a moment. Education is an atmosphere. That is, the child breathes the atmosphere emanating from his parents, that of the ideas which rule their own lives. So I like to illustrate this with a picture. Here's the parent and child, and there's a little circle around them. And that represents, just like planet Earth has an atmosphere that hovers around its surface, we all have, uh, there's a little atmosphere. You can't see it, but there's a little atmosphere floating around me. If you get close to me, you know, you can start to sense. I don't always have to put it into words, but we have this ability to sense 
what matters to people. And you can start to pick that up and you start to breathe that in and it comes across without you really trying. You can't hide it, actually. You can't hide the ideas that rule your life. So if I wanted to know what ideas ruled your life, I would ask your kids. Because they would tell the truth. So do you want your children to love learning? Then you need to love learning yourself. Do you want your children to turn off the screen? You need to turn off the screen. Do you want your children to sketch nature? You need to sketch nature. Do you want your children to enjoy poetry? Then you need to enjoy poetry. Do you want your children to know Jesus? You need to know Jesus. See, a Charlotte Mason education is not something that you do to your children. That's the wrong preposition. A Charlotte Mason education is something that you do with your children. And by doing it with them, you will learn it. I love the account in Volume 5 that talks about the education of Goethe, the great German poet and writer. And Charlotte Mason talks about how he was educated by his father. And here's just a line from that very lengthy and wonderful description of the education of Goethe. The father, who held that nothing was so stimulating to young pupils as for their elders to learn with them. Do you see the preposition? Didn't say that there was nothing so stimulating as for their elders to learn at them, <laughs> to teach at them. Goethe's father understood something. And it's something that Charlotte Mason emphasized. Why is it so stimulating to the young pupils to learn side by side with their parents? Because they love their parents. Your children love you. They adore you. They want to do what you're doing. And if you make them do lessons, when you want to be doing something else, whatever that other thing is that you want to be doing, they want to be going to do that because they want to be with you and they know what's important to you. Do you want your children to get excited about learning French? but you don't care about French and you care about something else, you care about, I mean, uh, good stuff, right? I mean, good stuff. You, you wanna, you, you're passionate about fixing your car. Let your kids fix your car with you because they can, they, they can be with you and sharing with your passion, but don't force them to go do something that you don't wanna do that you don't care about. So you don't know French, fine. Learn it with them. Your children will love it. They will love it to learn it with you. A mother asked me a question at a, at a Charlotte Mason event. She said, you know, how, how can I really understand narration? She's like, I, I want to understand, like, what can I expect from narration? She said, you know, we, we do our readings and they narrate and then it comes exam time and we ask the questions and I want to get a sense of, you know, what, what, should, what should we, how much retention should narration have given? And when I ask the exam questions, what kind of recall should they have? And I, I really just want to understand. I want to get my rubric set up. I want to understand if, if the retention a lot is a little. Like, help me get into the science of this and how it really works so I can start measurement. You know what I said to her? I said, if you really want to understand how narration works, why don't you try something? Why don't you actually, for the next term, why don't you pick one of the books and why don't you have your daughter read that to you? And why don't you narrate it back every lesson time for the whole term? And don't do any extra reading and don't do any extra studying and just rely on the narration itself. And then why don't you take the test at the end and see what you remembered? 
Why don't you just experience it? You don't have to read a study about it. Just live it. And then you'll know what to expect. You know, Charlotte Mason taught the method. Speaking of how to learn the method, Charlotte Mason taught the method to teachers in training at the House of Education. What do you think they did at the House of Education? I mean, do you think they sat like and listened to lectures? Did they, well, I mean, did they sit and just read that, you know, it's like, okay, show up at nine o'clock, we sit down and we read volume one, we go through it, you know, day two, we read volume two. I mean, did they sit down and read the volumes all day? Did they sit and listen to Charlotte Mason lecture? Did they, did they listen to studies about narration and how narration works and how much you should expect to, I mean, what do you think they did at the House of Education? You know, to give you a flavor of what life was like at the House of Education, um, the students, the current student, uh, the students one year at the House of Education, they took a folk song and they wrote a set of lyrics to go with this folk song. And they were sending it out to the alumni, the alumni, I guess, the alumni, former students, to give them an idea of what was going on at the House of Education. And they wrote it up in this little article called Dear Ex-Students. And they were kind of trying to show them that life was good and everything was alive and well at the House of Education. And uh, here are the words to the song. Do you want to study how to take a walk? Be a scale house student and learn wild birds to stalk. You'll also find a pleasure in climbing in the sun to find the height of mountains and why a stream doth run. What did they do at the House of Education? They went outside, they stalked birds, they climbed up mountains, they asked questions about why the rivers were flowing. Do you want to study why a bee it stings? Be a scale house student. You'll learn a lot of things, all about the insects, sponges, slugs, and worms, caterpillars, scorpions, and all that gives you squirms. Do you want to study what Sloyd and Carton mean? Read about it in lots of books and articles. Oh, sorry. <laughs> be, be a scale house student. On models, you'll get keen. Just use your knife quite freely and cut your finger so. Here's a scope for genius and words like hang-blow. <laughs> See, because being a scale house student can be dangerous because you're working with knives, right? And you can cut yourself. Do you want to study how to do-mi-re? Be a scale house student, learn nobis domine. How to beat one bar in and keep your part all right while your next door neighbor out of tune is singing quite. <laughs> so you're singing. Teachers are singing. Do you want to study how to read or write? Be a scale house student, attend a comic site. Stroke your nose quite gently, make sounds like bay-ba-boo. I-N-D-10 among them. Don't smile, whatever you do. This is, I think, about reading, uh, proper enunciation and so on. Oh, yes, it's real amazing what knowledge you can store at Scale How, where they teach you to dust and sweep the floor, knit socks and weed the garden, clear tables, play a hymn, do all that you can think of excepting how to swim. Now this is where we get, now you guys are not off the hook, you have to learn how to swim. So just a quick thing here, we're gonna, this is a modernized version here, so we're gonna lift it up to a higher standard. So swimming is not exempted anymore. Um, but you know, wh why do you have to learn how to weed a garden? Why do you have to learn how to weed a garden? Well, because there's outdoor activities and there's crafts and things like that. And how are your kids, I mean, you want your kids to garden. I mean, I don't know how to garden and I didn't do this. And so my kids can't garden. So I mean, I say that to my, I mean, I dropped the ball on this one. I mean, in many balls, but I mean, the point is that they learn how to do, they learn how to get their hands dirty. They learn how to do the stuff that they were gonna expect their children to do. 
And so um, this song was uh, to the tune of um, Riding Down from Bangor. <laughs> and uh, so Greg is going to um, perform for us. Do you want to study how to take a walk? Be a scalehouse student and learn wild birds to stalk. You'll also find a pleasure in climbing in the sun To find the height of mountains and why a stream doth run Do you want to study why a bee it stings? Be a scalehouse student, you'll learn a lot of things All about the insects, sponges, slugs, and worms Caterpillars, scorpions, and all that give you squirms. Do you want to study what Sloyd and Carton mean? Be a scalehouse student, on models you'll get keen. Just use your knife quite freely and cut your fingers so. Here is scope for genius and words like hang dash blow. Want to study how to domi rain? Be a scalehouse student, learn nobis domine. How to beat one bar in and keep your part all right, while your next door neighbor out of tune is singing quiet. Do you want to study how to read or write? A scalehouse student, attend a comic site. Stroke your nose quite gently, make sounds like Babel Boo. Hell ended ten among them, don't smile, whatever you do. Yes, it's real amazing what knowledge you can store at Scalehouse, where they teach you to dust and sweep the floor. Knit socks and weed the garden, clear tables, play a hymn. Do all that you can think of, excepting how to swim. Very good. Thank you, Greg. That sounded awesome. So, um, you know, that, that was great. And, and I mean, this is, this cut, you know, this, this, uh, this can make a un make uh, one uncomfortable. This can push you out of your comfort zones. I mean, last night we had the square dancing, and I have to tell you that that I, you know, it's like I did not want to go out and do the square dancing, but but I, I was I remembered you know Nancy's talk about the courage of capacity and the courage of, of opinion, <laughs> and I mean it, we we laugh, but I'm serious. Like I, you know, I had to step out in faith. I mean, it was like I I, I can't say that the the feast is good except for the stuff that I don't like doing, and so I said, well. You know, I, I'm, so I went out on faith and on courage, and I said, okay, I'm going to go. And plus, Barbara texted me, and she said, you need to do the square dancing. <laughs> but, so, but, I, but I went out in faith to do the square dancing, and you know what? I had a blast. I had a blast. And so I just think that by stepping out and starting to do these things, um, you're born, the science of relations, you're born with these affinities. You're a born square dancer. You're, you're born to sing solfa, you know, but step out. Make yourself uncomfortable. Remember the competence stuff I talked about. You know, don't let the curse, the ground is cursed. That's right. You know, guys, it's no fun to step out and do stuff that we're bad at. 
You know, I look, I don't like looking dumb, you know, um, but sometimes, but let's not let the curse hold us back from just stepping out and looking dumb because eventually we'll start to gain that competence that we so much crave and that we so much desire. So to summarize how to learn the Charlotte Mason method, I think there's three key steps. First one is to read and narrate the volumes in a group, whatever pace you can make, whatever group you can find, whatever volume they happen to be reading. Secondly, turn ideas into habits with the help of a friend or a group of friends. And number three, join the feast with your children. Or to kind of summarize this with pictures, read the volumes, mold your brain, and be a scalehouse student. So is it worth it? Um, I wish that I could say that this was an easy button. I wish I could say that there's a, you know, we talked yesterday about try to move fast to hit the ground running. I wish I could say that there was some way to make this not so much work. I grant that it's hard to implement these steps. But there are a lot of things in life that are hard. The SAT is hard. You know, my son, you know, he faced a big challenge because he had to take the SAT. And he worked really, really hard and ended up getting to where he needed to be. It was hard work. It was hard work. He had to practice essay after essay after essay. It was hard work. That was a hard thing for my son. You know, it's a hard thing for me. Transcripts for admission into college. That's hard. It's hard when you're a homeschool dad and all you have to send to the admissions officer is a daddy transcript. It's hard when the only recommendation that's sent in is dad. It's hard to type in and say, dear admissions officer, I strongly recommend Palmer Middlecoff for your program because of his academic ability and his ambition. As Palmer's father, home educator, and primary teacher, I've gotten to know him quite well. Um, it was hard. It's hard to type those words. But I want to tell you something. I want to tell you that there are certain things in life that are harder for your children than the SAT. And there are certain things in life that are harder for an adult than writing a daddy transcript. My son encountered some things that were harder than the SAT. And I encountered some things that were far more difficult than getting my son into college. But my son found the living water, and I found the living water. And there's a signpost that can help you and your family find the living water as well. And that signpost is encapsulated in the Charlotte Mason Method. Is it worth it to learn it? It was for me. Thank you. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry audio blog. We hope you enjoyed the program.